It's the Dockiverse Podcast, Episode 16. Frantic muskrats trampled my begonias. In this episode, we have another monster movie review, more of the Doclopedia, and commentary. So let's get started. Greetings, gentle listeners. I am your host, Doc Cross, back once again for another episode. I hope the past few days have been good for you. Around here, the weather's been pretty good, warming up into the low to mid-90s. That's pretty good compared to 112 degrees. Anyway, the big news around here is that I have finally sat down with my other gaming group, the one I've been playing D&D 5th Edition with for almost six years now, as opposed to the other group where I usually run D&D 5th Edition, but right now we're playing Firefly. Anyway, sat down with the D&D group and we have discussed what's going to be going on in the near future, and I will talk about that in the near future. And now, as always, we want to thank all of our wonderful patrons over on Patreon for helping support first my blog, now this podcast. Thank you, David. Thank you, Avis. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, James. Thank you, Marion, and thank you, Mark. You are all 100% excellent. Now, we're going to move on to the monster movie review, which is still on the topic of big bugs and will be for another one or two. This episode's big-ass bug is The Deadly Mantis, a 1957 American science fiction monster film produced by William Allen for Universal International, and it was directed by Nathan Duran. It stars Craig Stevens, William Hopper, Alex Talton, and Pat Conway. Now, the premise is that in the South Seas, a volcano explodes, which somehow eventually causes North Pole icebergs to shift. I have no idea how that works, but it does. And below the melting chunks of ice is a 200-foot-long praying mantis, who's been trapped there, of course, for millions of years. And it thaws out and begins to stir. And pretty soon, military personnel at a distant early warning line base, they start wondering why is one of their outposts not responding to calls. The next thing you know, they're finding the place all busted up. They go see a paleontologist at the Museum of National History, which is where half these people go when they're not out in the middle of the desert experiencing giant bugs. And they give him a tiny little spur, which is in his hands about a foot and a half long. And he figures out, hey, this comes from a praying mantis. The fact that it also ate some of the guys at the outpost, well, that adds to it. Anyway, the mantis is out raising hell. It attacks people in an Inuit village. They see it up in the sky, scares the hell out of them. And then that night, it actually attacks the main base, and then it flies off. And to make a long story short, as many monsters do, it heads for New York City. And giant insect mayhem occurs. This is actually a pretty good movie. Uh, Special effects are good. They're actually a little bit better than Tarantula, which I spoke about last week. Acting is not bad. It's pretty good, considering what they're given. So all in all, it's a pretty good movie. If I were going to watch giant bug movies, I would watch them, and I would probably watch this one, actually, before I would watch Tarantula. So if you see this, and I think it appears on uh, Turner Classic Movies once in a while, go ahead, give it a watch. Before I get started on the Doclopedia, where we are covering the alphabet still, the letters M and N today, I would just like to shout out to my patrons that if they have any 
requests for what to do Doclopedia-wise after we finish the alphabet, please let me know. Otherwise, I'm going to be left up to my own devices, and we all know that that can lead to mayhem and sadness and tears. And now, the alphabet. M is for Mars. The planet Mars exists in most of the realities we will be dealing with here. The notable exceptions are the realities where Mars was destroyed in some manner, four times by a massive cometary impact, once by just blowing up, and the one where Mars was stolen by the Gifkernik as their world ship passed through our solar system. And then there's the one where Mars vanished on August 2nd, 1753, and was replaced a few days later by another Earth. Except for those instances, Mars is the same in all of our realities. There are several realities where Mars retains a thin but life-supporting atmosphere and has varying types of worldwide ecosystems. On one, most of the planet is covered by a forest of very short evergreen trees and tough grasses. Many life forms live there, all adapted to a cold but not frigid climate. On another, the planet has many ruined cities which cover hundreds of square miles. Outside of the cities, most of the planet is grassland. There are realities where Mars has native populations living either above ground in domes or underground, sometimes in vast cities. In all of these cases, the Martian atmosphere up on the surface is no better than in our reality, but there are still a few ecologies of lichens and mosses. There's one reality where Mars is home to billions of robots of varying sizes, some as big as a house and they all seem to be terraforming it for some species that is decidedly non-human. That species is not on the planet. There are, of course, many realities where humans have gone to Mars. In some, they have even terraformed it. The technological level of these realities range from steampunk to 1930s-style science fiction to our own space age to nanotech age. In a few of these realities, humans discovered that Mars had once been inhabited. Sometimes, this discovery did not bode well for the humans. M is for Meribdis Island. Meribdis is a small volcanic island located in the northern Pacific, on about the same latitude as Seattle. It lies far out to sea, well away from any ordinary shipping lanes or fishing spots. The island is surrounded by very rocky reefs, and it only has a few small beaches and lots of steep mountains, so landing a boat there is pretty hard. The main peak of the island is in the northeast end and is a dormant volcano named Meribdis. No humans live on the island, which is for the most part heavily forested with conifers and ferns. There are, however, a great many deer, bear, wolves, mountain goats, and lots of smaller mammals and birds. There are no reptiles, but there are several species of amphibians, mostly frogs and newts. Seals and sea lions migrate to the island to breed. While no humans live on the island now, it was once home to a small colony of misfits who left China in 1145. They were led by a mad genius slash cult leader who told them he would take them to a new land where they would rule as gods. The truth was somewhat less dramatic. The colony lasted just over a hundred years before a long and very cold winter killed the last of them. During the time the colony was there, though, the leader and his most devoted students created several marvelous inventions, some of which would amaze even modern scientists. These are stored in a cave in the lower southern slope of the volcano. So far, nobody has found them. N is for Night of the Ghosts. On January 15, 1971, from 6.14 a.m. until 3.26 a.m. on the 16th, the city of Macon, Georgia, was beset by ghosts. Thousands upon thousands of the spirits of the dead appeared all over town and interacted with the living. Most were gentle and non-threatening, but some were pranksters and a few were horrible and mean. There were riots, and then churches filled the capacity. 
but no amount of praying stopped the ghosts, and in fact, many of them entered the churches and knelt down to pray, which emptied the churches pretty fast. People saw loved ones, old friends, ancestors, hated enemies, and folks they didn't know from Adam. Oddly, no ghostly pets showed up. Hundreds of thousands of photographs were taken, along with hundreds of hours of videotape, film, and sound recording. Over the course of the first few hours, the National Guard had to close all the roads to keep sightseers out. Paranormal experts rushed to get there. When the ghosts finally disappeared that night, many people had to be treated for anxiety and related disorders. 195 people committed suicide after meeting dead family and friends. Many of them had been suspects in those family and friends' deaths. To this day, nobody can explain why this event happened or why it has never happened anywhere else. Macon now holds an annual ghost night, during which it is estimated that the city gets 400,000 visitors and makes upwards of $125 million. N is for nanoids. Nanoids are any humanoid-appearing artificial life form made up of nanites, which are cellular-sized or smaller nanotech devices which usually function the same way as various cells in the human body do. In many realities, nanoids are merely the next evolution of robots and are not allowed to develop true sentience or sapience or form any sort of mental interface with their fellow nanoids. All communication between nanoids must go through a mother unit which can filter out non-essential data. One great advantage of nanoids is that they can alter their shape to fit the needs of their current task. For example, a babysitter nanoid, who had to keep a close eye on her charges, might sprout a few extra eyes and enlarged ears, the better to track the little darling's antics. There are realities where nanoids have either been given sapience or have achieved it in other ways. Sometimes this results in conflict, such as on the Axis-controlled Earth-11, where a British scientist managed to sneak part of a sentience code into some nanoids. It was later completed by a Jewish scientist hiding out in India. The nanoids, who the Nazis and other Axis powers treated like slaves, all turned on their masters on May 19, 2040. The next day, the Axis world government was a thing of the past. Now, in 2056, you could not pay a human to disrespect a nanoid. All nanoids have full rights, and they work alongside humans in all walks of life. Another nanoid conflict reality was Earth-46K, where the nanoids started waging war on the humans, who they considered an inferior and ecologically dangerous species. The war has been raging for seven years now, and it's hard to say who is winning. The nanoids are tougher, but the humans outnumber them about 2,000 to 1. Finally, on Luna-12R, where the Earth is uninhabitable due to humans screwing it up, the nanoids were given sentience early on and sent to Earth to try and find a cure for the human-killing superflu that drove most humans off-world and seemed to live on and most of the other animals on the planet. The nanoids rather like being on their own on Earth, so after 40 years now, they are still telling the humans that they cannot find a cure even though they found one three years after they arrived. Okay, folks, it's time for the commentary for this episode and... This one is about the good old days of gaming. And I am here to say that the good old days of gaming are right fucking now. Yes, the 70s and 80s are a time of great nostalgia for a whole lot of gamers, mostly old white men like me. But really, back then, what, there were half a dozen, maybe a dozen different role-playing games. Finding a group was difficult. Everybody thought you were working with Satan. It was just... It was not nearly as good as everybody thinks it was. The past is always glossed over by dim memories and shit like that. No, right now, today, are the good old days. Why? Because there are millions and millions and millions of people playing role-playing games. There are 
hundreds, if not thousands of role-playing games that you can get into. If No matter what subject you want to play, role-play in, that's it. They got one out there somewhere. Might be a little tiny one with very simple rules done by one person in a garage. Might be a great big one done by a huge company like, well, Wizards of the Coast. But they're out there. Finding a group? Holy Christ, you've got the fucking internet. You can find a group anywhere. Maybe you can't find a group that wants to play exactly what you're doing. But hey, if you can't do that in your own town, you can go online and play. And let's get around to, uh, oh, the inclusivity we have now. Yeah, I know, there are a whole lot of old white men that that just chaps their ass. But yeah, there are tons and tons and tons. In fact, according to Watsi, something like 40% women playing. There are people of color. There are people from the LGBTQ community. There are kids. There are older people than me, and that's getting pretty damn old. It's just a whole new world of people playing, and I understand that that grates on some of the gatekeepers, but tough shit. While we're at it, let's not just talk about role-playing games. Let's talk about board games. There are more fucking board games out there than you can even ever hope to play in three lifetimes. There are thousands upon thousands of board games coming out every year, and they've been doing that for a long time now. Um, The media. Gaming is all over in the media. We got big stars who are former, you know, D&D players. Maybe you'd like to watch somebody play D&D or some other game. Guess what? About a zillion streaming uh, channels out there that you can do that on. Or maybe you'd like to learn about it. Learning about gaming is easier than it has ever been. It's easier than it was in the whole last 30, 40 years combined. Why? Because you can go on YouTube. You can go on the web. You can read blogs. You can watch videos. You can listen to podcasts. Yes, these are the good old days. They're excellent. It's wonderful. It's a glorious time to be a gamer. People aren't looking down their nose at you like they used to. There's none of that satanic panic shit going on. It's great. And if you happen to be one of those old white guys who bitches and moans that, you know, D&D was this better, blah, blah, and we did this and we did that, well, you did it, okay? People aren't doing it as much anymore. And if your end of the hobby starts to die off, and it will because we're all going to die, you know, the whole hobby's evolved into something else. And it's great, and I'm glad to be living in it. So, that's it for the commentary this time. Let's see who I can piss off next time. Okay, folks, we are at the end of things here, and this is where I thank you all for listening and say that if you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, I can be reached on Facebook, where I'm Doc Cross, on WordPress at the Docaverse blog, via email at agentroscoe at gmail.com, or if you're listening via Anchor, you can leave a voicemail. If you'd like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts two weeks before any go up on Anchor, just go to www.patreon.com forward slash Doc Cross. Our music this week was Whiskey by Crowender off the Free Music Archives. It was in the early spring of 1897 that my friend Mr. Sherlock Holmes informed me that this podcast and everything on it, except the music, is copyright 2021 by Doc Cross an American criminal mastermind of some note.